You know, as we go to prayer, just to bow our heads and close our eyes, you can remain standing if you so desire. If just a posture of prayer, of being seated is more your style, that's fine as well. As we go to prayer, and, and yet before I read the scripture and pray, I want to ask you a question, a question that I, I shared early this morning with the worship team. The Lord has been impressing on me Sunday after Sunday, just as I prepare to come and worship him with you. My question is simply this. What did you expect? What I mean is when you woke up this morning and you did whatever you had to do to get here, you opened your eyes, you remembered it's Sunday, you thought either I get to go to church or I have to go to church or I need to go to church or somebody's making me go to church. What, when you walked through the doors this morning, did you expect? I know we expect some songs. We expect communion or a missions moment or some sort of presentation. We expect a sermon. We expect that there are people who are going to pray and read out of the Bible to us. But, but I want you to think deeper than that. When you thought, I'm going to church, to what we call the house of the Lord, to meet with fellow believers in Jesus Christ, did you expect I'm going to go put in my 90 minutes and get on with what I really want to do today? Or did you come here expecting for an appointment with the living God, the one who is his love for us, as we just sang, is so amazing that he sent his son to die in our place. I don't know what you expected. You know what you expected. The Lord knows what you expected. But here's what I also know, and it really is just a scriptural declaration of the song we just sang. This is the end of Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God? This is not like any other time when we meet here together. He's enthroned on high, and yet the scripture goes on to say he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on the earth. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He even makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. You know, I don't know what you came expecting, but the Bible says, the scriptures say, those are the kind of things that God does that we should expect when we gather in his name under the authority, not of a church or a pastor, but under the authority of his word, in the presence of his spirit, we should expect him to work in all kinds of ways in our lives and in our hearts. And so what I want to do before I pray is just allow you a moment of quiet to maybe, if, if you came joyfully and willingly today, just to affirm that, Lord, I came expecting you to meet with me today, expecting that you're going to speak to me and, and guide me. And, and maybe you're coming from a different perspective altogether. You need to acknowledge, Lord, I came today expecting nothing except that I was somehow going to get through this and move on. It, it's not about what we meant to do. It's about where we are. And so just take a moment and, Lord, here's where I am. And as you yield to his spirit, Lord, here's my heart. Not for what Aaron has to say, not for the songs Frank and the team have to lead, but here's my heart, Lord, for you to deal with as you see fit. Just tell him where you are. Yield and just, Lord, I humble myself before you that you might have your way with me. You tell him that right now, just quietly in your heart. Father, the psalmist sets our hearts right when he asks the question, who is like our God? We know the answer. The answer is no one is like our God. 
No one comes close. No one ever has or ever will. You are exalted above the heavens. It says in this passage, you even look to see the things that are in heaven because you're over and above that. And yet you humbled yourself. You sent your son to rescue us from sin, to deliver us from hell and eternal separation, to make us new uh, creations and teach us the way to walk in a fallen world. Father, I pray now as, as I have this unique privilege and responsibility of speaking to my brothers and sisters from your word that they would not listen to me, but they would listen for you. That your Holy Spirit, who your word says lives in us as believers and meets with us when we come here, would truly be the one to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from apathy, from pride, from distraction. Sweep it all away. So that in these moments together, Lord, these pivotal moments, we might see Jesus. Father, may we see him clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see him only this morning in the preaching of your word. May we come before him expectantly this morning in the preaching of your word. And Father, when we leave in a little while, may it be rejoicing, not because we solved any of the world's problems, but because we sat at the feet of the one who, though he rules on high, humbled himself for our sakes talking about Jesus, whom we love, and whom we seek, and in whose name we pray, all of us together say to you, Lord, amen and amen. You may be seated. As always, while you're taking your seats, let's allow the boys and girls to leave for Children's Church. Some very important time that they can have in God's Word as we seek uh, to enter into God's Word together as well this morning. And if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, and if not, I hope that you can lay your hands on one quickly. I want you to turn, <clears throat> excuse me, turn in it with me to 1 Kings, once again, chapter 21. Uh, again this morning and just a couple more Sundays, we're going to continue walking through and moving toward the conclusion of our study of the life and the ministry of God's servant, the prophet Elijah. We're going to do so this morning in 1 Kings 21. And if you were here last week, you may recall we were in chapter 19 last Sunday. And so maybe you're asking, probably not, but maybe someone is, uh, what happened to chapter 20? And the fact of the matter is this, we're looking at the story of Elijah. And, and while the story of King Ahab continues through chapter 20, Elijah doesn't make his appearance. So I just skipped it, jumped over it. We're going to jump back in in chapter 21, where once again, as we're going to see at God's design, according to God's plan, Elijah steps back on to the scriptural scene. So I want you to get to 1 Kings 21. We're going to read, as always, from it here in just a few moments. But before we do, I have something I want to say. And what I want to say is this, that it isn't right. It isn't right. And somebody ought to do something. And there ought to be a law against it. Because I want to know, and I know so do you, why does he, why does she, why does they, whoever he or she or they happen to be, why do they keep getting away with it, right? Now the particulars may be different, but the sentiment is the same. That is a thought that you have had in your life, believer in Jesus Christ or not. Those are words that you've said at some point in your life, probably more than once, believer in Jesus Christ 
or not. It is a way you felt. It is a sentiment you have agreed with. What I'm saying to you as we begin this morning is that all of us in the room are aware, well aware, more than, than aware of the problem in this world that we call injustice. Injustice. And by that I mean the problem of good people being treated badly and bad people who always seem to get away with it. It isn't right but it keeps happening. And you know, it's not just you and I. We aren't the first people to feel that way. We certainly aren't the first people to to live in a culture where that question comes up on almost a daily basis. It was also a sentiment. It was also a question that I believe the prophet Elijah was asking and thinking perhaps as we turn to today's portion of his story. Because what the Bible scholars and experts tell us is that between where we left off last Sunday at the end of chapter 19 and where we're picking the story up again this morning at the beginning of chapter 21, as many as five or even six years of time have passed. Five or six years of time during which, despite Elijah's massive victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, King Ahab is still on the throne and Queen Jezebel is still at his side. Five or six years in which, even though up on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal were defeated and they've been dead and gone for a really long time, revival hasn't come to the land. People aren't turning en masse back to the Lord. Five or six years in which despite all of Elijah's zealous, prophetic service, the bad guys still seem to be winning. Winning regularly, winning constantly. And that that is a fact that this morning as we turn our attention to God's word, that a specific man by the name of Naboth, who as we're about to see was King Ahab's neighbor, was about to find out firsthand. And to see what I mean, I want you to grab your Bible and look with me as I begin reading. In 1 Kings 21, verse 1, follow along as I read most of the passage, excuse me, where this is what the Word of God says. Now it came about that after these things, and these things were the events of chapter 20, which were a series of military uh, uh, conflicts that Ahab engaged in, after these things, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside, right next door to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's close beside my house, and I'll give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed, Because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, Ahab, lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and ate no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite. And I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Rise up, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and the nobles living, in, living with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in those letters saying, Proclaim a fast. Seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, you cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. 
So the men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it is written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth at the head of the people. They, then they set two worthless men. They came in and sat before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Rise up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Rise up. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours as well. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Elijah begins delivering the prophecy. Behold, verse 21, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's a prior king, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, another prior king, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also the Lord has spoken, saying the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. The one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. For surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. Now, look up here. I realize there are three more verses in this chapter. And I want to assure you that we are, in fact, going to look at them before we're done today. In fact, the last three verses is where we're going to spend the, most of our, the majority of our time. It's where we're going to drill deepest. But before we do that, I want you to promise me something, all right? And if you're not willing to promise, I at least want you to do a favor. And what I want you to do is promise me, assure me, you are not going to read those last three verses, okay? So just don't, you're already looking at your Bible. Don't do it. Don't do it. In fact, here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your right hand and pledge, okay? I promise, half of you are doing this, that I will not read ahead and ruin the sermon. All right, got it? Okay, now do what you got to do. Cover up those last three verses. If you read ahead, try to forget what you read before you came in this morning. Because while we are going to get there, and and we're going to, as I said, we're going to dig into it deep, there are four things in what we just read that you need to see first. And we've got to understand them, and we've got to take hold of them, and we've got to make sure we've got a grasp of them. And once we do that, then we'll be ready for those last three verses that you are not supposed to be looking at. So don't. We'll get there quickly here, the four things first that I want you to see, and then we'll really, as I said, drill down into the fifth. 
In order to get to those three verses, what we need to see first is, number one, that the first thing that we are shown in this story is that we are shown that King Ahab was in a place, a situation of pathetic sorrow. The first thing I want you to take note of in this passage is King Ahab's pathetic sorrow, because you saw it as well as I did. When he could not have, he couldn't turn his neighbor's vineyard into a veggie garden as he wanted to do, what did Ahab the king do? It says it very clearly. Uh, You've seen this happen probably in your own house. He ran to his room, slammed the door, threw himself on the bed, and pouted. I can't have the vineyard, and and I'm going to be miserable and make everybody else miserable because of it. Now, here's the thing. Naboth had every right to refuse the offer. Because you see, the, 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 the cherished tradition in, in ancient Israel was that land was a gift from God. God had given them the promised land. He divided it among 12 tribes. In each tri- in, among each tribe, each clan and family was given a plot, a possession. And, and people who were faithful, who had some shred of understanding, understood my land is a gift from God. And I don't, I mean, you can give it up, but you don't do it easily. You better have a good reason. And so Naboth was well within his rights to tell the king, buzz off. You can't have my property. And and apparently that was enough. Ahab's character was constituted in such a way that he went home and threw a fit. But while that's a reality that may have thwarted him, his wife, Queen Jezebel, felt no such inhibition. And I really just, by the way, I have to say that though her question to Ahab in verse 7 is terribly misguided, uh, in a sense it's a fair one, are you not the king? (laughs) I mean, don't kings take what they want and, 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 and always get their way? Are you not the king? Stop acting like a baby. Get up and be a man. If you want it, go get it. And if you won't, I will. I will. Stop wallowing in your pit of pathetic sorrow. And then without waiting to see how he'd respond or what he'd do, She went on Jezebel to do the second thing I want you to see in what we've read so far. She hatched a diabolical scheme. Ahab descended into a pit of pathetic sorrow. Jezebel hatched a diabolical scheme. You know, one author writes when he's commenting on this particular story, makes the observation, and I think it's a helpful one, that when you have a God, listen, when you have a God that is a thing, It is not the true and living God of the Bible. It's a thing. It's an object, like Jezebel did with Baal. This author goes on to say, neighbors also become things as well. People become objects to use to achieve what you want to achieve, to do what you want to do. They're just stepping stones on your pathway to success. And you know, when you walk that, that's a dangerous path. And when you walk that long enough, when people are things because you don't worship a God who is personal, you worship yourself, your checkbook, or whatever else, whatever the ideal is that you're pursuing, you walk that path long enough, literally anything towards other people becomes possible, anything goes. Here it began in verse 8 with deception. Write a bunch of letters, get a bunch of worthless people, say some things that aren't true. Started here with deception which by verse 13 resulted in false witness. The two worthless men came in and sat before him, and they testified falsely against Naboth that he had cursed God and the king. Resulted in this instance in murder, the end of verse 13, where they did in fact take Naboth outside the city and stone him to death with stones. Why? Because he's in the way. He's an obstacle to be overcome. 
But not only that, since normally in the Old Testament, when a man died, his property automatically went to his sons. You know what the book of 2 Kings tells us? It tells us they didn't just stone Naboth to death. They took his whole family out. They stoned them to death too, just to make sure nobody, nobody else got in the way. And when, verse 15, look at your Bible, Jezebel got the news that it had all worked out. Naboth had been stoned and was dead. She went back to Ahab's room and said, see, man, that's how it's done. This is what kings and queens do. When you've got the power, this is how you use it to get what you want so you can live as you want to live. Ahab, no more Naboth means no more problem. And I'm sure somewhere between the lines, if not directly, she would have also said, not only no more Naboth and no more problem, but there are no more worries that anyone's ever going to try to stop us again when they see what we've done. Except, perhaps after a five or six year absence from the scene, she had forgotten to calculate about one thing, that old meddling prophet Elijah, who always showed up when they least wanted to see him. And that's exactly what he did here when he reappeared on the scene, just in time to deliver the third thing I want you to see in the passage as we've read it so far, which after looking at Ahab in his pathetic pit of sorrow and then seeing how Jezebel overcame it with her diabolical scheme, Elijah the prophet arrived on the scene and delivered a dramatic sentence. He came and delivered a dramatic sentence. Because here's how it went down. Look at verse 16. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go to the vineyard of Naboth to take possession of it. But at the very same time, coincidentally, as we like to say around here now and then, it also just so happened that at the very same time, verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, maybe for the first time in five or six years, saying, you get up, Elijah, and go down and meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who is in Samaria, for he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And when you get there, I have a message for Ahab, a message that I think Elijah could have delivered in a single breath that began with an indictment of theft and murder. Verse 19, you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And then without waiting for Ahab to offer a reply, God directed Elijah to deliver this gruesome sentence. Thus says the Lord, verse 19, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood as well. And in the remainder of this section, down to about verse 24, Elijah went on to say again, we would see at God's instruction to say, see, because Ahab, here's the deal. God sees exactly what you've done. He's seen it all. He knows every detail. He knows every bit. He sees what you have done. And as such, because of what you've done, not, you've done, not only are you going to lose your life, Jezebel's going to lose her life. And, and your sons are going to lose their lives and be cut off from Israel's throne as well. They're all going to suffer your same fate. And while the Bible goes on to tell us it took three years for that prophecy to come to pass for Ahab. And it was actually even several more after that before the prophecy was fulfilled on Jezebel. Elijah's message, wouldn't you agree, is rather clear, very dramatic. Ahab, there's something you need to know. You're not getting away with it. You're not getting away with it. Because as the author of Kings, this is now not Elijah speaking, it's the author of Kings who recorded this story for us, shows us in verses 25 and 26. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see in what we've read so far. 
This is God's fourthly impartial summary. The reason Ahab wasn't getting away with it because here is because here is God's assessment of Ahab's life. Surely, look at verse 25, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols. And if you've been here since the start of our study at the life of Elijah, that should come as no great surprise. I mean, it was a while ago, but that, you may not remember, that's exactly where we began. In fact, I told you in our first week of looking at Elijah's life is that you can't truly understand or appreciate Elijah's life and ministry and what God did in and through him until you understand the times in which he lived and the king under whom he served, which was, for the most of his ministry, was wicked King Ahab. And that's why our first study in the series wasn't about Elijah, it was about him. And if you go, and I want you to do this just quickly, go back to chapter 16 where we began... This is not new information at all. When it talks about when we're introduced to Ahab in the book of 1 Kings chapter 16, here's what we're told about him when we first meet him. Verse 30, that Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. The end of verse 33 says, again, he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before. And let me ask you something. How'd you like that to be the bookends of your life? (laughs) Evil at the start, evil at the finish, evil, 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 all the way through. See, we need to recognize, and, and I know this is so easy to do. I do it as well when I'm reading the Bible, to realize this isn't a fairy tale, okay? It's not a flannel graph. The Bible is telling us about a real man who really lived for, ruled for 22 years over the nation of Israel, caused an incalculable amount of suffering in people's lives. He took their livelihoods. He took their lives. He caused suffering on families and all sorts of different ways. He's a man who, again, there's, to this point, not a, not a good thing said about him anywhere. And I happen to think, I mean, you've got to read a little bit between the lines to see it, but basically because of who he was and what he did and, and, and the, the idol Baal whom he served for so long, I, I imagine along the way he kept countless people from ever coming to understand the, the way of true and saving faith in God because it was worship Baal or, or you're out of here. This is a bad man. This is a wicked dude. And this is God's assessment, his impartial objective summary of his life. Which is why, as I now am going to permit you to look at the last three verses of the passage, the final thing that I want you to see here, and as I said, what we're going to drill into deepest is that the final three verses of this chapter, which we have not read so far, and I'm trusting that you kept your promise, is we are about to encounter what I would consider a truly inconceivable surprise. The fifth and final thing we're going to settle in on in this passage in these last three verses is given everything that we have seen together so far, we are about to encounter a truly inconceivable surprise. And again, since I know you kept your word not to look at these verses and and think about them and and read ahead to, to see the end of the story, that is precisely, surprise is precisely how I know you are going to feel when I tell you that it came about, verse 27, that when Ahab heard these words from Elijah, that dramatic sentence and that terrible summary, he tore his clothes. 
And he put on sackcloth and he fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, the prophet, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil that I've promised in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. You heard right. No need to adjust your screen. Ahab, wicked, wickedest King Ahab, repented. He repented. And you know, you can debate and discuss among yourselves all you want, how real you think that repentance was, how deep you think it ran, or how long you think it lasted. But here's what I know for sure. The bottom line is it got God's attention. And that the word of the Lord got Ahab's attention, which the word of the Lord always does when we are paying attention. We've said around here many times before, and this is just a living illustration of it, no one can truly encounter the living God and walk away unchanged. And that's what's happened here. Something happened in Ahab in response to the word of the Lord. And, and frankly, if that doesn't or if it hasn't already had you asking some awfully big questions, I'm going to offer you a few that I think we would do well to wrestle with. In fact, in the, the remainder of our time together, I want to pose, this sounds like a lot, but five questions. You may want to pick one or two that you especially zero in on, but I think that what we have just seen here the buildup in 26 verses of sin and, and assessment and judgment and all the rest, followed by this very sudden and surprising act of repentance, I think it prompts several things, again, that we as believers would do well to think about, the first of which is simply this. I'm going to ask him in the form of questions. I'm going to say you, but you know I mean us. Question number one, do you realize, do we understand, based on what we have just read in this story, and this may come as a great encouragement to some of you, that every lie has an expiration date? Did you know that? Every lie, every cover-up, every act of deception has an expiration date. Because look at the story. Despite having an apparently foolproof plan, Jezebel, and, and all the power of Israel's throne to go with it, let me ask you something. How long did her diabolical scheme last? I checked, okay? I checked. I say 24 hours tops. 24 Go back. I'll show you exactly what I mean. If you go back and look at verse 15, it says, When Jezebel heard Naboth was dead, she said to Ahab, Go take the vineyard. Verse 16, When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he rose up and went down to take the vineyard. And in verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Elijah, get yourself down to the vineyard. 24 hours tops, right? Quickly. I mean, this was a foolproof plan, right? This was without flaw, at least from their perspective. Now listen, God doesn't always work that fast. You understand that, you know that. But can I tell you something? According to the scriptures, this is always how he works. Because every lie has an expiration date. And every deception has an end point. Nobody, not even Jezebel, gets away with it forever. Because God sees and, and God knows. And, and, and that's not my opinion. You know who said so? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus said so in Luke 12, 2. He said, there is nothing. Everybody say nothing. There is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. And there is, again, say nothing. There is nothing hidden that will not be known. Does that sound rather absolute to you? It's all coming out. It's all going to be known. The truth always comes to light. And here's the thing. If we don't confess it, he will expose it. 
If we don't confess it, sooner or later, he'll expose it. Question number one, do you realize every lie has an expiration date? This story tells us so. Second, this is sort of the flip side of the same coin. Do you trust, do you, do I, do we trust that God really is going to fulfill all of his promises? Do you trust God to fulfill all of his promises? You know, so often as Christians, and and I think you'll understand what I mean when I say this, oftentimes as Christians, it's difficult for us to believe that God's going to keep his promises of blessing, that he really is going to supply all our needs, that he really will give us our daily bread, that he hears our prayers, that he answers our prayers, that he's going to give us the grace we need to go through hard times. Anybody agree with me? Sometimes it's hard to believe that God's going to keep his promises of blessing. You know what's even harder, though, I've discovered? Believing that God's going to keep his promises of justice. I think that's the one thing that's even harder still. To believe that he'll keep his promises of justice. And I don't know, maybe that's something you're grappling with today. You're looking at your life. You're looking at your family. You're looking at your workplace. You're just looking at the world, right? And saying, Lord, where are you? You said you you, you handle things like this, and yet it doesn't look like you're doing that at all. You want to know why God doesn't do something. Listen, I don't know when he'll do something, but you know what this episode from Elijah's life assures us? He will. Someday he will. He will administer justice where justice is needed. In this case, it, it, it took a few years. I said that already for judgment to fall. But go home and read 2 Kings chapter 9. It fell, and when it fell, it fell hard, and it fell absolutely and completely. And again, that's not my opinion. You know who said so? Same answer, second time. Jesus. Luke 18, 7. Will not God, Jesus asks a rhetorical question because he already knows the answer. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Yes, he will. You say, when? I don't know. How? I don't know. I just know that Jesus said he will. Do you trust God to fulfill all of his promises? Because every lie and deception has an expiration date, third. And again, some of these questions, depending on where we are today, you, I, we may need to to grapple with more. I just want to lay all of them in front of you because I think that unfolds a bigger picture here. But the third question is this, as we get into more of the specifics of exactly what happened with Ahab, do you recognize the power of humility? Do you and I, do we as believers, recognize the incredible power of humility? Because what inquiring minds really want to know about these last three verses is whether, as we put it in New Testament verbiage, did King Ahab get saved, right? That's what we want to know when when we all get to heaven. Is King Ahab going to be in the chorus, right? Will he be there with us? You know what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because while everything after verse 29, because Ahab's story continues a little while longer, everything after these three verses would suggest that there was no presence of an abiding or enduring or authentic faith in his life. We just don't see evidence of him truly seeking to follow after the Lord. At the same time, what we see in these three verses seems awfully authentic. It seems awfully sincere. Because as I suggested to you a moment ago, whatever happened in the span of these three verses was sincere enough, was real enough. If you look at verse 19, and I love thinking of it this way, it's like God elbows Elijah in the ribs and goes, did you see that? (laughs) 
Elijah, are you paying attention to what just happened in front of you? Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself? Are you paying attention, Elijah? Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled. Look at your Bible, verse 29. He has humbled himself before me. And because he has, I will not bring the evil in his days. I'm going to do what I promised, but I'm going to postpone it. And here, in a single word, is what got God's attention. Humility. He says it twice. Do you see how Ahab has what? Humbled himself before me. And you know what? Humility is something that always gets God's attention. Always. And it's something that without which none of us can be saved. We've got to humble ourselves. He is holy. I'm a sinner. Jesus died because I couldn't pay the price for myself. I've got to humble myself to be saved. And you know what? You've got to humble yourself to walk with him as well. It's all over the scriptures. One of the most beautiful expressions is in Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 says this, He has shown you, O people, what is good and what God requires of you. And then it says three things. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God wants humility. And when, when he sees it, it gets his attention. Humility is something he works with in powerful ways. And, and again, while in this instance it didn't erase God's judgment, it only postponed it, it does prompt a, a fourth really radical question, and it's this. Have you, have I, have we drawn the circle of God's mercy too small? Have we drawn the circle of God's mercy too small? Now, if you were here at the beginning of the year for our study of the life of Jonah, we asked this question every Sunday. It was the theme of the book. The fact that we are inclined, I am anyway, to draw the circle of God's mercy too small. Because here's the thing. This is the plain fact. Even if Ahab wasn't saved here, guess what? Could have been. You know what's even more astounding? So could Jezebel. But even after all she's done, oh yeah. Oh yeah. She could have been saved. And the same goes for whoever it is in your life that you look at and mutter to yourselves, it could never happen. <laughs> it's never going to happen. People like that don't get saved. Tell that to the Apostle Paul, right? It could happen. It could and, and it does. For as I live, says the Lord in Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, that means as sure as I am real, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I rather that the wicked turn from his wickedness and live. That's what God wants. That's God's heart. You hear the heart of God in that? I'm, I'm not excited that anyone would be judged and separated from me from all eternity. I want them to turn from their wicked ways. That's what God wants. And so here, just to maybe to phrase the question differently, well, I would guess if we were to take a show of hands, we could all agree with the justice that Ahab was promised, understanding of the kind of guy he really was. Could we all equally raise our hands and say we also agree with the grace he was shown? That God saves Ahab's and Jezebel's and Saul's of Tarsus? people like me and you? How big is the circle of mercy? It's bigger than we think. It's bigger than we know. Have we forgotten that today's spiritual enemy could be tomorrow's sister in Christ or brother in Christ with whom we'll spend all of eternity? That's a hard thing. Listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to be trite. That's a hard thing to grasp, grasp. But we were once as they. Is what the Bible says. Fifth and finally, and then we're done. The final question, and, and, and really I think this is a question that continues in a variety of ways to emerge throughout the story of Elijah. 
And it's this, and maybe of all the things we've looked at, this is the most encouraging one, at least it is to me. Do you believe that simple obedience, simple obedience, makes a profound difference? Do you, do I, do we believe that simple obedience makes a profound difference? And, and again, this is where I think we can be encouraged this Sunday by that New Testament declaration that Elijah was a man just like us. Because on the whole, really, if you sort of look at it in terms of just pure mathematics, Elijah's presence in this chapter is kind of small. Uh, He's not necessarily, it's not that he gets second billing, but he certainly doesn't get top billing. The main players in this story are Ahab, Jezebel, and Naboth, and then Elijah, halfway through it, arrives on the scene, and he does what he always does, gives a really short message. All Elijah, listen, all Elijah does in this story, two things, show up and say what God said to say. Go where God said to go, say what God says to say. That's all he does. There's no fire from heaven, right? There's no birds bringing him food. It's just, I went where God told me to go and I said what God told me to say. But let me ask you something. Did his simple obedience make a profound difference? It did for Ahab. It's it's, it's the moment upon which this whole story and really perhaps the whole trajectory of Ahab's life turns. And who's to say he wouldn't do the same through you? Who's to say he wouldn't do the same through me? Use our simple obedience. Just go, I mean, I think Nathan and Valerie are a great example of that. Just go where God told you to go and do what God told you to do when you get there, right? And 15 years later, how many lives have been changed for Christ? I love those stories. I hope you love them too. It's what God does through simple obedience, profound differences, profound differences. Listen, the Bible, and and just to reassure anyone who's doubting, the Bible never says, everybody say, the Bible never says. The Bible never says that in order to do what God wants done, he's looking for the biggest, strongest, fastest, smartest, most articulate, best-looking people he can find on the planet. That's not what it says. Isaiah 66, 2, here's what God says. This is the one to whom I will look. This is the one with whom I will work. The one here comes again who is humble, contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. doesn't mean you run and hide. It's like Ahab running to your room and slamming the door. It means I hear God's word and I realize it must be obeyed and I'll do it. Humility and obedience. And here, once again, that's what he found with Elijah. Simple obedience. Profound difference. Listen, we don't know. I don't know why the bad guys always seem to win. I don't. I don't know why, and it frustrates me as much as it does you, that wicked people always seem to prosper. Well, those of us who are trying to walk with Jesus feel like we're always getting the short end of the stick. I don't know why that always happens. But what we do know from this morning's study is the question is not a new one, and we've been reminded, and again, take heart in this, if nothing else, nobody gets away with it forever. Nobody. Nobody gets away with it forever. But much more than that, I mean, that's sort of the the hard side of it. The mercy side of it is that sometimes God even saves those people and brings them to himself and shows them the same mercy that he showed you and I when we were just as dead in our sins as they are. I am no better than anyone else, and neither are you. We all have the same need. We all need the same Jesus. And that's why the big idea of today's message is that God, it's really true, he magnifies himself in some mysterious places. God magnifies himself in some pretty mysterious places, in unexpected people, in unjust situations. And he turns them around 180 degrees for his glory. 
Father, thank you that your word tells us in another place that your ways are not as our ways, your thoughts are not as our thoughts. You are so much bigger and wiser and greater and also so much more merciful than I am or than any one of us ever will be. Father, thank you that you have this amazing, extraordinary way of turning the most unjust situations and the most unlikely people into instruments and examples of what your grace can do. Father, I don't know where a message like this, a story like this strikes any one of us. I'm guessing there's a whole host of ways that it comes to us. But Lord, I think we can all identify with the cry, how long, O Lord, how long? As the psalm that the team read earlier, why do the nations rage? And Lord, why do you let them continue to rage? We don't know, but you assure us that it won't always be that way. Father, I pray that where we are struggling as we wait for your justice, where we are struggling, where we just wait for an answered prayer, maybe it's the simplest of things, that we will be assured that based on what we've seen here, you see, you know, and you will finish what you've started. And in the meantime, Lord, we ask for the grace to wait on your timing and the mercy to show those around us who once again are as lost as at one time we were. Father, take the things of truth and seal them to our hearts and take all the rest and just let it go by the wayside so that we leave with hearts fixed on Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.